0: Ewan Spence. Ewan Spence, my guest on this very special edition of the Music Meets podcast with me, Magica. Ewan Spence, broadcaster, writer, music maven and podcasting supremo. Ewan is a luminary of the Eurovision world as the voice behind the excellent ESC Insight podcast and the accompanying website, both of which offer in-depth analysis of the world's greatest song contest. Far more than just a fan site, they publish fascinating articles about various facets of the contest, from how broadcasters shape and nurture their national finals, to exclusive behind-the-scenes pieces by artists, heads of delegation or songwriters like me. Ewan has also provided the official online commentary for the Junior Eurovision Song Contest, as well as bringing it to life on radio, when it was broadcast from Scotland and heard all over the world. Outside of the euro bubble, Ewan is a prolific broadcaster, earning a BAFTA nomination for his coverage of the Edinburgh Fringe and contributing to Radio 5 Live, the BBC World Service and also presenting local radio coverage of the general election. As a specialist in mobile technology and online media, he writes regularly for Forbes and his work has also appeared in The Stage, The Times and on various TV channels. Now, this is a very special podcast you may have gathered for three reasons, all of which begin with E. E for Ewan. I've wanted to get him on the podcast for a while. Very happy to be second E in Edinburgh, beautiful city. Please visit if you haven't before. I don't know why it's taken me so long. I'm here now. Third E, the big E, Eurovision. So please don't switch off. If you think you don't like Eurovision, I promise you it's going to be an interesting, compelling conversation about Europe, about pop music, about staging.
1: I hate that, why you immediately feel the need to apologise. It's because of
0: my peers. I live in France, right, and I have this every day. Oh, l'Eurovision, ah, mais c'est Rengarde. Rengarde means, like, old-fashioned and flaky and rubbish, and I'm constantly defending it. Anyway, it's a Eurovision podcast, it's going to be fantastic, it's in time for this year's contest, so get with the programme slightly different format. We are both going to pick three tracks, but actually they're going to be Eurovision entries that reveal something of our relationship with the contest. So I've asked Ewan and myself also I have picked a song which captures the magic of Eurovision for us, a song that we consider a game changer, one that broke the mould for Eurovision, and a song that we love that didn't necessarily do that well in the contest. So let's dive straight in with your first choice. This is a song which captures the magic of Eurovision for you. What have you picked?
1: I'm going back to 2009. And it's a Belarusian cock-rock, hair-blown, jumpsuited suited Petr Elfimov and the eyes that never lie. Reason to be my last song, my battle cry.
0: Okay, that was Pietre, I don't know how you pronounce it. Peter, Peter, Be- Peter. Peter. That was Peter. Peter Elfimov with Eyes That Never Lie at Belarus 2009. Now, why have you picked this one?
1: There's a couple of reasons for this one. Uh, my Eurovision association goes through three periods, essentially. There's the period when I was very young and it, it just pops up on May. There's that thing. You check the TV times, you watch it for three hours and you go away again. And that's basically 1982 till the early part of the 21st century. So for me, the one track I remember is the very first one which is bardo's one step further then there's that second period when social media started to kick off and i just started to play around not even as a fan just as i like this my friends like this and and the glory point there was lordy and hard rock hell you because simply because i'm on all the rocket metal forums i can see what's happening i know everybody in europe who's basically got hair past their shoulders is going to vote for this and nobody else in my circle of friends have picked yeah. it up it's finland and they're like what it's finland it's finland and nobody rated me hope and at the end of the night it's just like i
0: you remember dear listener that was the monsters the monsters for finland was that period?
1: and then there's that period in sort of 2008 2009 where i realized that i could do it professionally i can get commissioned. i mean and 2009 was the first contest i went out to got a commission from the stage run a series of articles over two weeks and that effectively was where everything professionally kicked off because of that and elphamoth is from 2009 it's from that contest and it, look, it appeals to the 80s rock god in me, because it is just so overblown and over the top. But at the same time, there's there's confidence. You go in, it's my music, I'm just going to do it my way. It's also the only time Belarus have ever won anything at the Eurovision Song Contest.
0: Okay, racking my brains, they didn't win the Barbara Dex Award, which is for the worst outfit. Yep. I have no idea. What did they win?
1: Carson Jakobsen won. The I best do know what they won. Yes. <laughs> they won it for the best steady shot of the year for any event across the world voted on by other steady cam operators. Basically, he stands on a Segway at the back of the stadium. Wheels this segway and while he's holding the steady cam, jumps off the Segway onto the stage, does a 960 degree spin around the singer, uh, and then does a much larger spin 360 across the stage and goes off and does this live in one take, in one movement, without falling over, and it's just that subtle thing of we're going to push the envelope at Eurovision but it's so subtle Mm. you miss it but the thing here is all professionals picked it up all of them just went oh so you you couple the song that taps into my excess the underdog story quite frankly the greatest white jumpsuit since Alec Guinness in the 1950s plus the, the technicality and the performance and the choreography that's involved in this even though it's a belarusian song that didn't get out the semi-final it really didn't score anything that there was the one that at the start of my professional eurovision career went this is what this contest can do
0: Mm. i'm so glad you picked up on the steadicam shot because I was like, really? This song? Re- really? But the performance is amazing. I tried to play it to a friend of mine who's done a bit of camera work before. And I was literally like, just just wait for the second verse you're going to see. Like, it, it's amazing. He was like, I will not wait for this song to reach the second verse. It is an acquired taste.
1: Yeah, it is, yes. and But there again, any bit of music is acquired taste, not just Eurovision. Yep. There are people out there, quite frankly, who don't like prints. There are people out there who don't like Rick Astley, yeah. Rick Astley being one of them. It's all about finding something that you like. And one of the benefits of Eurovision is you get exposed to so much music throughout the year. It's about 10,000 songs enter all the national finals. You can't help but find your own champions. And for all you people who just poo-poo and just watch 26 in a Saturday night, that's that's fine. That's great. But there's 9,500 songs that you've missed. And generally, there will be songs in there that you will prefer to whatever you see on the Saturday night.
0: Yeah, and that actually brings me nicely onto my choice, because something I wanted to talk about was a a kind of phenomenon that a lot of my friends and colleagues do not understand, which is that I can love a Eurovision entry without loving the song. And that's to say, well, let's dive straight into it. This is Malta, 1998, Chiara, the one that I love. I adore this entry. It gives me goosebumps. Sometimes it even makes me teary. Do I listen to this song in my free time? Do I pop it on the shuffle? No, it's not on my iPod. I don't listen to it. I'm not interested in listening to it. But it is a fantastic Eurovision entry, and I love it. The one that I love, Chiara, Malta, 1998. I never felt the same. Malta 1998, a Eurovision entry that I really love to watch and enjoy. It was a moment. There are several reasons why. Number one, it happened in Birmingham, and this was very much, uh, this is the, the theme of course, is a song that captures the magic of Eurovision for me. I had orchestra practice on that morning, I would have been 17 years old, and I went into town on the bus as I did every Saturday, only to find a lot of Germans wandering around in dungarees. I thought, something's different in Birmingham today, what's going on? And I got off the bus near Centenary Square, and I walked through and saw oh my goodness, the press have come to town. And then I thought, oh yeah, it's it's Eurovision, isn't it? It's happening in Birmingham. Hadn't paid that much attention, wasn't really that into it. The buzz just walking through that square was so phenomenal and I could see how excited everybody was. I went home, watched it live from my city and of course fell in love with the contest. The other thing about this song and, and what I'm trying to get at here is that It might not be my day job to write this kind of music or even to be involved in it. It's a very saccharine ballad, very sweet, almost sickly sweet, a kind of Disney feel about it. But Chiara manages to bring some magic to that stage. That's what I'm interested in.
1: I think there, there are two things to point out um, from that whole contest. The first one is Kara's little cheeky wink at the end, which Anne Robinson steals for the weakest link. <laughs> it's just a, yeah, a little little nod there. And of course, Malta came so agonisingly. close. If, if, if we ignore junior Eurovision for the moment, this is the closest Malta have ever came. This was down to the last vote and they could have taken victory. And this was the point when it was about 50-50 in terms of how many countries could vote publicly, how many used juries. The English language rule was still in place on Malta had a little bit of a built-in advantage and Malta as an island is desperate to win something you know and and in, in the entire history of Malta there's no bronze medals at Olympics or athletics or European champions all they've got is two victories at junior Eurovision that's only happened in the last three years. The other one is, this is where Eurovision does one of those changes. And I know we're going to talk about that later with the songs. But this is where the idea of Eurovision as an arena show starts to kick in. We've pulled back a little bit from that now. But there's also, and I'm going to put you on the spot here again. And if you've been listening to podcasts from me the last year, you'll know the answer to this one. Something new happened in the 98 show that is still with us to this day. Hmm. Well, it was a period of great
0: change. It It was was the last year with the orchestra.
1: It's not that. something that that arrived that year.
0: Well, I mean, it was more present televoting, but I guess that's not what you're getting at.
1: No. If you look in the bottom left of the corner, you'll see the word Malta. And it was the first year where the country name stayed on the screen while the song was playing. Yeah. So now, of course, we've got television coming in and everybody needs the numbers and all that. It's always there. But at that point, point, the executive, one of the executive producers, Guy Freeman, a name that we will both be familiar with as he runs the BBC entry now, when he grew up, he was like, I hated doing Eurovision because I would come in halfway through and not know who was singing. I'm putting the name up on the screen. So he put the name up on the screen, and to this day it remains.
0: Yeah. That is interesting. And suddenly an entry becomes more of an entry and not just a song.
1: Yeah. It's very, again, very much a country. Eurovision then, yes, it's, it's the singing. It's competitive. But it's also technology. It's performance. It's the change of the medium. And this kicked off reality tv voting essentially mm. um although people will say it was things like pop idol 2001 2002 eurovision abused pilot this for three or four years it's true but well, the point of eurovision eurovision is actually a, a satellite network that's
0: the whole point is it's trying to pioneer ways to bring the the, the continent together um, what do you make of this thing that you can love an entry without necessarily loving the
1: song does that make sense to you it does yes for example i have an abject hatred musically for only teardrops Denmark's entry the one through I the song is so saccharine it is from lake. Emily de Forest makes Chaz from Take Heart look like a very articulate figure but at the same time I completely admire for want of a better word the tactics the skill that was used mm. to make sure that that song became the winner the fact that it was engineered the second it finished the national final to be called the favourite and then it became the favourite, and then because it was the favourite it topped the running orders and the betting. And because of that it got a leg up in the final, because of that it actually won through. Yeah. I hate the song. Mm. I i could quite happily live with that song being excised from history. But in terms of how do you win Eurovision, it is the perfect example of how to take something average, polish it, roll it in little glitter tinfoil cannons that cascade down at the end of the song, shout winner, and make it a winner.
0: Yeah, I, I wouldn't go that far with only chef drops, but, but I certainly hear you. There are songs that I, I greatly admire, and actually, that I kind of, it's not that I love, but I get on board. I get on board. For those three
1: minutes, I'm like, yes, you deserve it. You deserve to win. Those three minutes are the best three minutes that that person can do. That, those three minutes have won through be it an internal selection, a raffle, a, a, t- a tender process in the case of certain countries, a televised national final they've all won but the joy of Eurovision is that all 10,000 songs each year that enter they will all lose Mm. at some point it's all about losing gracefully as late as possible in the process Mm. it's about accepting a challenge and facing it as best you can so those three minutes do I like the song no do they like the song yes is it something that they have poured themselves into yes you have to respect that
0: yeah okay Let's move on to the second theme. I have asked Ewan to pick a song that he considers a game changer. Now, I mean, there have been so many through the years. We've had 60 years of Eurovision, but you've, I've just made you pick just one. And which song have you gone for? This
1: is, a, this is not as hard as the next question. It has to be said. But when you have a 60 years, 61 years of Eurovision, I've had to box clever here. And I've went for one that probably the last great game changer, which is Gina G's Ua, Just a Little Bit.
0: Gina, I am cringing, and it's, it's not... gorgeous song, what are you talking it about? It is not your fault, Gina G. Dear Gina G, 1996, UK. We sent a high-energy track, the kind that was already in the charts. We had yeah. Wigfield, we had, you know, JX, Son of a Gun, we had Grace, all of these big, early-90s dance hits. So we get one of them! We get one of them, and a, an actual hit, a song that hits the... Top 10 in the in the US in the dance charts, you know, a proper hit potential song, and in my mind, a great Eurovision song. But NRK, the Norwegian broadcaster, they haven't quite haven't quite got the camera angles. The the poor guys are playing what looks like kind of um, ironing boards with a computer at the end of it. An actual computer with a monitor there to show this is
1: electronic music. It's, it's actually worse than that. It's actually, and no, this is the reason why. I'm- taking this one as the game changer because somebody has to be first and that person generally has to fall. Military techniques you send somebody in, they will die but it opens up the beachhead. This is the beachhead just before the arenas kicked in. This is 1996. You still had you had the, an orchestra there okay? but you could now use a backing track But so there was actually, and you would love this two or three years before that they would have had to have used the orchestra to do this track <laughs> No, I would pay good money I would for an orchestral good. version, <laughs> live, okay. just a little bit. Next
0: time I am leading an orchestra, I would say, Trumpets, could you just give me a dinner?
1: <laughs> yes, go for that. Um, but the rules are, if you use the backing track, the instrument had to be envisioned black and white. So it's a computerized electro synth. That's why you have two Amstrad PC 646s on stage, because the computers made the music, therefore the computers have to be in vision. So it's just like, it's like taking that rule and just going, right, we're just going to show that BBC, it's literally showing up what's wrong with that rule. We don't have public voting at this point. Public voting gets introduced in 1997 as a pilot for four countries who will do a tally vote and allow the public. So we are 100% jury voting here. Basically, five old duffers back at every single TV yeah. station. And they completely missed what was going on here. They were looking for easy listening. They were looking for the middle of the road. This is a period of anodyne dry dry period, to use a good Scottish word. And Gina comes in and goes, we can be modern. We can be fix this. I have a theory that every ten years or so a song comes along that changes Eurovision. Um, we're gonna to get to one of them kind of with yours. You got the right year but you didn't get the right song. Um, and there was one in the fifties, um, which is now de de blue. Um, the sixties were gonna to- otherwise known as Voltare. Volare Voltare Volare. Voltaire. Voltare Volare. Uh, Which, interestingly, got, of course, got the Grammy nomination. Um, You have the 60s, uh, which we'll talk about in a second. ABBA, arguably, much as I go, uh, everybody chooses ABBA. ABBA did go, look, this is what's going on in the charts. Let's do this now. The 80s, really, in 1985, there should have been a synth-pop hit in there. Mm -hmm. There should have been some electoral. Instead, we got Sandra Kim. Eurovision in the 80s missed that chance to catch up. So, as a result, the 90s are just dire mm. and then genie comes along slaps everybody about a bit sacrifices herself next year of course we've Love shine the light we have anthem we have that we then come back to the uk we stick it in a stadium um, you then have all of that coming up eastern european countries come in and just go we want to win mm. uh, and all the west goes okay right, well, contest isn't dead then we'll keep going um this is why this is a huge game changer for me. Oh, just going back very briefly. Volare, Grammy nominated. One other Grammy nominated song at Eurovision.
0: Oh, goodness me. Okay, just going through a thousand songs in my mind. Grammy nominated.
1: No, I don't think it's going to come. It's Gina G, Grammy nomination for best dance record. Wow. Yeah, judges. <laughs> you... uh, uh, to be fair, the UK would kill for 12, points. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, you know what? Funnily, because we picked these choices in isolation, I've also picked a UK entry as a game changer. That's interesting.
1: Yeah, you've got the right year, for the wrong song. You're one song out, as Ken Bruce would like to say. <laughs> I think this was a
0: game changer from 1965. This is Kathy Kirby with I Belong.
1: half my life. My heart's been sleeping for all this time I love and keep it, but now my heart has recovered from pain. Past-
0: A lover. I think I found Why no other? Kathy Kirby, I Belong, UK 1965. Now, I picked this as a game changer. I am aware that the winner that year was France Gale for Luxembourg, Poupée de Cire, Poupée de Sang.
1: But CC, yes, she sung it, but I don't think she actually won it. Sir Gainsborough won that year. Yeah. But to be fair, Britain was robbed. Kathy got twenty six points, uh, and France got uh, thirty. Luxembourg, France Gal. <laughs> God. gotcha um, Sorry, but she was like like second last in the running order UK's finishing starting second in the running order yeah. if you'd switched those positions around you would have had Kirby um, coming up with our, our winning song yeah, as I love how we're getting stuck into the, the politics of the contest like only 50 years too late <laughs> come on let's sort this out guys come on it's not too late it's not <laughs> too late at all uh, look Kirby is a wonderful song and when you look at that week the the charts in the UK was the Rolling Stones this will be the last time. Yes, I will buy the Hollies, The Game of Love by Wayne Fontana, The Mindbenders. I belong should have been in with that mix. It'll be number 36 after mm. Eurovision, which is an absolute shame. But I'm intrigued why you say specifically this is a game changer. It's mainly because of that beat. Actually, we just watched the
0: live performance and it doesn't come across really quite strongly enough. When you listen to the record, that beat is pure Mersey beat. And that's exciting to me because. I have a personal project to learn all of the lyrics to all of the winning songs of Eurovision since the start. And I started at 1956 and I'm up to 1967. So I have slogged through, only the winners, you understand, a fair few dull French and Dutch <laughs> chansons. <laughs> so to hear this that came, I like Poupée de Cé, Poupé de son. It's great. And it's the similar burst of energy. It is a great burst of energy. As soon as that starts, you're like, okay, let's wake up. Because, you know, Mersey Beat was hitting a couple of years before that, really. Yeah. Eurovision's always been a few years behind. And finally, 1965, Bang! Mersey Beat arrives at Eurovision. It arrives with not only this entry, but as you say, Franska's entry as well, with Serge Gainsbourg. The only thing I think why I picked this one and not "Poupée de Cire, poupée de Sang is that "Poupée de Cire, Poupé de Sang is also part of this "yeah yeah" style, which comes from France, which is basically Serge Gainsbourg and his contemporaries copying what was popular elsewhere and doing it in French. Yeah, you know, I say yeah 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 yeah
1: yeah yeah
0: yeah. I say yeah yeah. You know. But at
1: least France and mainland Europe carried on that in Eurovision when you listen to the songs that are coming out of, of that whole period when mm-hmm. you look at some of the stuff that comes out especially out of the Belgium and the Netherlands in the, in the late 60s it carries on that effervescence that that continental Mersey Beat sound for want of a better phrase yeah. which just does that so that's why to me Gainsborough's is the game changer because everybody followed him if Kirby had been the game changer mm. why on God's green earth was 1966 Kenneth McKellar's <laughs> A Man Without Love. How can you legitimately say 65 is a game changer when in 66 you have, not to put too fine a point in it, a bit of traditional Scottish ceilidh music at the Eurovision Song Contest? You can't be a game changer if nobody follows you. People followed Gina G. People followed Gainsborough. People did not follow Kirby. Yeah. Okay, I take your point. It's true that I have not yet
0: plunged into the murky world of late 60s Eurovision. I feel like I'm a... It's great.
1: You only need to learn two words. La and la. la la la.
0: Oh my goodness! I'm gonna have to learn that one in a minute. Oh no! What am I gonna do?
1: Okay. Anyway, yeah, but, but it also means it also means that you get the 1968 contest. We've we've talked about 65 some great songs, but really, if you look at 1968 as a contest, the whole contest, that's the big game changer. That's yeah. when Eurovision suddenly leaves the end of the pier music hall, yeah. stand behind a microphone. That's when it breaks out into personalities. That's when it breaks into a little bit of pop music. And of course, it went colour. in. In more, in more ways than one <laughs> indeed yes let's move on to your final
0: choice and i've asked you to pick a song that you love that didn't necessarily perform all that well at eurovision and you have picked as have i an icelandic entry this is again pure coincidence
1: but you've picked iceland 2012 right I hate you for this question i absolutely hate you for this question from 2009 when i started doing professionally i've got like 70,000 songs that i at least <laughs> have an affinity with and there are bundles of songs in there that Didn't do well, but I still love it. Um, I've decided to compromise, Um, and we're going for Iceland 2012. But specifically, we're going for Mundefjörmir.
0: So this is the Icelandic version of the Icelandic entry. It went into English at the contest, but we're going to listen to the Icelandic version. This is Greta Salome and Jónsi with (laughs) Mundefjörmir.
1: sem áður skildur ástin
0: verður því
1: Mund eftir mér þegar er lost er. mý
0: we're listening to the icelandic version of the icelandic entry
1: in 2012 right far away and it's about language and it's about storytelling uh, and it's about presentation eurovision can be any cell can be any genre we talked about nrg we talked about marcy beat uh, and everything in between but there's also the fact that it is three minutes of live vocals and the voice is one of the most delicate precise and wide-ranging instruments that anybody has and why people think it should only make sounds that they can say themselves I think is a huge huge block to people really opening up and enjoying music Moon Def I don't need to know what the words actually mean If I've got a really good performer in front of me, I will know what the emotion is, what the words actually mean. And when you listen to those two versions of the songs, when you have Icelandic and when you have English, and you ask me which I prefer, it's the Icelandic one. Because the Icelandic one, I lose myself in the music in the tone in the emotion with the English one I'm listening to the words and I'm trying to compose the words and the bit of my brain that should just be sitting back and going oh wow it's just going what do they mean by when they say that then what do they mean by that what are they trying to do and it starts to analyze and it starts to make it easy and I don't I want to be challenged by music I want to have something that that comes up and hits me over the face and just goes right, you need to think about this now mm-hmm. and a lot of the songs that when they switch language lose that impact for me and I know that the majority of people watching on the night don't care but there's also the storytelling element because it's not just performance it's about art it's it's about what you can do to tell a story You're on stage with your six people and it's also about what you can do with the music video this is why I hate People who just put Eurovision down or or who make apologies for, like you did at the start of the podcast. it's You shouldn't be apologising for something that's as artistically worthy, that's as personal, that's as gorgeous as you get with this. You get these jewels every single year. And okay, you might not like the look of some of these jewels, but as we said before, people have sweated blood, sweat and tears to get these as perfect as they can. The annoying thing for me is when they do that, and then they polish it a little bit more.
0: (laughs) So basically what we're saying here is that because it didn't do as well as you you might have liked, should have stayed in Icelandic and was not
1: polished in the right way. I I certainly get that from this performance. You're saying a song which I love, which didn't do well. That song didn't do well. That song, in my opinion, didn't do well because one half of the duet let this side down Mm. on the night. Okay, and it's three minutes, it's live, you get one shot down the camera. The competitive contest. I like that bit as well. Yeah? It's like if you don't dead stick the landing on the night, doesn't matter how good all the preparation was, yeah. you've, you've wiped out on the landing. And Iceland wiped out on the landing in 2012, in my opinion. Did you do badly? Yes. But not because it was bad, not because mm. it was. I, you know, if it had been in Icelandic, I think it still would have had the same issues on the night in Azerbaijan. Okay. That's interesting. So I, I've heard you talk quite
0: a lot on your podcast about Icelandic. Very often you say, for example, the entry in 2016, yes. that it might be stronger in Icelandic. I don't disagree. However, I think it's because those two songs are very wordy. They're very fast. You know, never forget what you did, what you told me. when My heart and soul, morning woke up. It's very,
1: very wordy. And the words are not that good Mm -hmm. in English. And and to be fair, if if I look down the list, my list of songs I like from national finals that didn't make it through this year. If we head back to Iceland for the national final this year, Erna Hron has... A nice duet in Icelandic uh, this year with Huar Trodeson, and it was okay. But when they put that into English, and it became I Promised You Then, in English, that was a far better song. So it's not just it has to be in a language. It's about how it uses the voice. You need to choose the right instrument for the right piece of music.
0: Yeah, I totally get that. And I think it is on a song-by-song basis. Um, I think that you talk about the kind of mystery of Icelandic. It is a very mysterious language. It's a very ancient language, actually. And not a lot of people understand it. Even Scandinavians have a hard time. It's so it's only about 20% of the words that you can understand. So most of the continent is not understanding what's been said. And I think particularly with Never Forget slash Mundeftemir, you get that feeling of what they're going for. And as soon as they try to put it into English... All the magic has gone, because mainly because those lyrics are not good enough. Never forget what I did, what I taught. That's not, a, that's not an evocative lyric at all. Sure, don't tell. That's the thing. And I think that if they had been more confident, actually, in their staging and even in their song, they might have been able to keep it in Icelandic and communicate it. I think they thought, well, no, we want to reach the whole of Europe. We want to, we want to reach beyond our borders. So, of course, we put it in English which is some kind of screwy logic because like you said i think we're on the same page here if your song communicates best keep it like that or at least enhance what's there and going into english is not always the best way to do that
1: yeah agreed and we could probably sit and pull out examples and counter examples of when english Mm. worked and when it shouldn't work it comes back to that word of confidence. Mm. Molitva, uh, which is a winner. which I love you when you try to learn to sing that. You know word. what? I have
0: already learned the chorus of that one, and I'm going to prove it. Molitva, na Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah
1: <laughs> Thankfully, you've got Nocturne coming up as well. Uh, that was the right decision to keep on Because when you hear it as destiny, yeah. yeah, destiny has always wanted to keep me free. It's like, mm. ah!
0: Yeah. it's it's on a song by song basis and actually as a producer I, I sometimes have this conversation with people usually they present a song we're not going to translate it we don't usually translate from one language to another but on an album sometimes we are saying okay well how many French songs do we need how many English songs do we need what are you trying to say that's the thing and when I work with artists who are totally bilingual it's not an issue A song comes to them in English, a song comes to them in French, whatever, easy peasy. I have worked with a Swedish artist who was trying to sing in Swedish for the very first time after a whole career of singing in English. That was interesting. She suddenly had to own her opinions, own her feelings, own her poetry, because she was singing in her mother tongue. We're going to move on to my final choice, the final selection on the podcast, which actually is pretty much the flip side of yours. It's another Icelandic entry. This one could slot into any of the categories. It was a game changer. It sums up why I love the contest. But it was also a song that underperformed in terms of the points. This is Paul Oscar with Minhinsti Dance, Iceland's entry in 1997. Ef ég helst oh, yes, í
1: dag, hlöfðið fyrst á
0: Oscar or paul oscar 1997 iceland min dance my final dance now i think this song would have actually been better in english he wasn't allowed to sing in english it was part of the rules at the time he had to sing in icelandic the reason i think that is that the stage performance is revolutionary it is totally as we say in french mise en scène there is a sofa there are women in fishnet stockings it's a, a pvc fest it's incredibly brave. He has a Britney Spears microphone so that his hands are free to express himself. It's really a tour de force of trailing the way for how songs were going to be presented in the next decade at Eurovision with a proper staging and artistic concept. However, it's also very sexual, and I think it's a little off-putting for people, and they don't even understand what's being sung. His lyrics, from what I remember... Are quite melancholic. They're singing about, I've been all around the world, you know, I've been to London, Paris, Rome, all these things that I've experienced. I wish I could understand what he was saying. And I think if he could tell his story in English, this one would have drawn me in. And, you know, as a juror, I might have thrown a few more points its way. I also understand that this is a song that did much better on the few countries that televoted. The juries, unaccountable juries, were like, oh, no, 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 we do not put this in our Eurovision song contest.
1: So... OK, let's start with the nice. Um, he scored 18 points. 16 of those points came from three of the countries that were doing public televotes.
0: I'm just pointing out at this point, I have had Paul Oscott on the podcast, and he did very proudly announce that and tell me <laughs> that, that the EBU told me that
1: I would have come sixth. So he, yes. no, he's very aware of that. Um, it is ahead of its time. If it had waited two years, even if the language rule hadn't changed, the language rule would have changed by that point, the public opinion would have given this a top 10 hit uh, in terms of Eurovision. Yes, it pushed television boundaries. This is Eastern Europe is just starting to come in. So to have, basically Gary Newman playing Snape, uh, surrounded by the Slytherin cheerleaders, um, <laughs> is just you know I that's going to that's going to flip the boat for some people out there. Yes, it is forward looking. Yes, the performance is very metrosexual. Yes, there's, you know, <laughs> we talked on the podcast that there should have been a jump to electro-pop and synth in 1985. And quite frankly, if the BBC had done that with Gary Newman, it would have sounded a bit like this. It might not looked a bit like this. It would have been a car or a plane or upside down or whatever. But it's that sort of of sexual danger that you get from people like, like Paul, like Gary Newman. But my problem with this song is the song. It's nothing more than an intro and three minutes of a drum loop. And it is no good being revolutionary in your visuals and in your presentation and in your attitudes if your song is a bit naff. Well...
0: I refer you to my previous podcast with Paul Oscar, who will admit not that his song is naff. I do not think the song is naff. I do think the song is, as Paul describes it, one that sneaks in through the back door and doesn't have a chorus. And he is very aware that it doesn't have a chorus. It's like a Bond theme without the killer chorus. It's beautifully orchestral. I actually love it for that reason. I love the fact, I'm very aware that it's not a competitive song, but this is the kind of thing that I might consider listening to outside of Eurovision. And there are very few songs like that. Every two years, there's one, maybe. The last one I can think of off the top of my head was maybe Anouk's Birds or maybe Margaret Berger as well, I Feed You might Love, a song that was so, my taste that i would actually take it away and i'm aware that that doesn't make it a good eurovision competition song But sometimes I just like to be indulged. And when I watch this, I'm going, if I were his age and I were entering Eurovision 97, I would do that. I would get that orchestra and I would get them to play on a techno beat with that harp and that beautiful arrangement. And I would just enjoy it. He knew it wasn't going to win. He knew he didn't. He didn't have a winner. And
1: and this is the point. You, You can compromise going to Eurovision and you will see many bands and performers have their will bent towards a certain trope. Um, In 2016, I believe Cyprus is one of those that is just being bent slightly against the will. They don't either have the confidence or they don't have the political power or they don't have the financing to say, we are doing it our way. Mm. Pal's song does it his way. And his choice is a very simple one. Do you go in and do something that could score well? Or do you go in and do something that is you? Mm. And yes, the song is a bit naff. I'm sorry, Gary Newman doesn't float my boat, but Gary Newman's confidence does. And that confidence, that power, that's what you see in PAL. That's what makes it such a great song contest entry for yeah. me the confidence and the power to go mm. out. I would never listen to this again in 100 years outside of the original because it would just be the music and there would be none of that connection there for me. But it has what I love in Eurovision, which is somebody going, I, me, yeah. I don't care about the rest of you.
0: Well, we've come full circle because the first theme we chose was a, a song that captures the magic of Eurovision. And for me, to sum it all up, if you haven't already understood, dear listener, I love a song that comes on stage for three minutes and says, hey, the whole continent, you need to listen to me and you need to feel what I'm feeling. And I'm going to communicate that to you in the most powerful, direct way I possibly can for three minutes and the song that does that the best wins. I believe nearly every time the song and the artist and the staging that does that the best wins.
1: Indeed, because if you look at charts and playlists and YouTubes in the three months after Eurovision, the songs that are at the top of the table other songs that stay at the top of the charts mm. on youtube and spotify three four five six months down the line mm. okay you could argue that that would always happen with the winner but when you can see the difference between the fifth place song and the 15th place song in the charts three months later when people go oh it's fixed we all know who's going to win well yeah we all know who's going to win who's going to win is going to be the best song on the night is going to win because if you know any otherwise and go and tell me who's going to win next year go and tell me who the top 10 is tell me who rush is finishing you can't yeah I think that's as
0: good a point as any to finish it on. May the best song win. Right. As ever, if you'd like to get in touch, you can. Just follow me on Twitter, at Magica. Or you can send me an email, podcast at magica.com. Check out show notes. I'm going to include video links, including the video of Mr. Zooming along with his Steadicam on the Segway. It is quite incredible. So all of that's going to be in the show notes. You just go to magica.com forward slash podcast. Now, we always wrap up with a vocal impro. Do not fear. I will need you to join in with me. I think I already did one Eurovision podcast and I did a kind of hip-hop version of the Tadium. I think the Tadium has to stay. I mean, it's, it's the theme of Eurovision. I thought about it, maybe a kind of jazzy, drum and bassy version. Uh, Ewan's giving me the evil eye now. <laughs>
1: Can I humbly suggest that this might not
0: be one of your best ideas? I'm afraid it's the concept, and I'm I'm one for a concept. I
1: can understand the concept, but we probably want to forget about the concept
0: now. (laughs) I'm going to insist that you at least perform some kind of animal noise.
1: I could be a goldfish. Okay,
0: goldfish is on. I think goldfishes probably enjoy the tedium as much as anyone else. Here we go. They do for six seconds. Goldfish appreciating the tedium. Dum bum zim what bim bum we doing again? bim <laughs> Dum